Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We spent a lot of time talking about energy security, as you might expect. One thing we tried to do on this program over the last few weeks is bring it back to food security as well. We heard from the agriculture minister of Ukraine this morning. Ukraine said the following, the situation with Ukraine's food is, quote, under control. They went through the stockpiles, things like wheat, things like corn, said wheat stockpiles were sufficient for two years, corn stockpiles sufficient for one and a half years. Let's talk about food security, domestic and international. And really, one of the best guests I can think of for insight into the inner workings of the Ukrainian economy, the former Ukraine finance minister, Natalie Jurezko. Natalie, fantastic to catch up with you again. You are perfectly positioned to run us through this. Help us understand the threat to both domestic food insecurity and international food insecurity as well. Well, thank you very much for having me. I think on the domestic side, what they said about the stocks is very true. And I don't think it's the issue of whether or not there's sufficient stocks. I think the challenge is right now food security, in particular in the cities that are being besieged because there's no way to get food into the cities. And those that are still functional, Kiev, for the, for example, the capital, are having trouble getting bakeries to function. And so the challenge is taking those stocks and translating that into food, I think uh, usable food for the population. With regard to the international community, that's very different. Uh, everything depends on whether or not farmers are able and willing uh, to go out and farm and to plant this spring. And as you've seen, uh, Ukrainian farmers have a lot of other things on their minds, including taking some of the tanks. So it's it's a question of how much of the arable land is going to be safe uh, without bombs flying overhead to, to plant. And if not, I think you're going to see a serious food problem globally, in particular in northern Africa and the Middle East. Meanwhile, Natalie, earlier this morning, we were speaking with our own Maria Tadeo, who said that in two weeks, Russia single-handedly destroyed Ukraine's uh, economy. And I wonder how long, how lasting that destruction will be, which speaks directly to the food security. How soon after the conflict ends, could those farmers get back out? Could the land be salvageable? Well, if we miss this, farm, this planting season, we're not talking about planting again until we have a, we have a minimal winter season and then it's next spring. So really the time is the next two, two, two months for, for planting. And if we miss this season, then I think you're going to see uh, global food prices rise uh, substantially. That's the damage to the Ukrainian economy. When it comes to the Russian economy, we know already a lot of damage has been done by sanctions already put into place. From your perspective, Natalie, how much powder is still in the keg, how far away is the West from having exhausted all of its options on that front? We're very far from having exhausted our options. We've been pretty timid. There have been a couple key sanctions that have had an effect, meaning the freezing of the reserves of the Central Bank of Russia, which has affected their ability to support the exchange rate. And then the devaluation of the, of the ruble has caused uh, bank runs and so on. But I think we're not yet seeing uh, the rest of the banking system frozen. So we do not have uh, full blocking sanctions, even against Sberbank and VTB, the two largest in the system. Um, those only have uh, minimal sanctions. And then the rest of the state-owned banks are still unsanctioned. Uh, state-owned energy companies, unsanctioned. We still haven't sanctioned the state-owned logistics companies, the state-owned transportation companies. I think there's still quite a bit to do. 
We've done in the United States an, a ban on oil imports, but that really is the limit of it. That and some increased tariffs in Canada. We really need everyone in Europe to join in the, at a minimum, uh, increase in tariffs on Russian imports, if not a ban on certain, in particular, oil and gas. So there are still a wide variety of sanctions that haven't been used. And frankly speaking, I think we've been too timid. We need to move much more quickly. And that seems to be the message from uh, Vladimir Zelensky this morning in Germany. He was saying, you guys need to stop uh, with some of these gas payments, although it does become very difficult because they rely on those pipelines for their lifelines and for uh, costs to be remain within control. What are you looking for in the next couple of days, the next couple of weeks to try to bring this to a close? First and foremost, it's delivery, urgent delivery of those military supplies, some of which were promised by President Biden yesterday in particular air defense. It is the bombing and the missiles that is causing uh, the most tremendous amount of death. Uh, what you saw with the bombing of a theater in Mariupol in the southeastern part of the country um, with 300 to 500 civilians inside, that that can't be stopped uh, not with, but by the very brave Ukrainian armed forces on the ground. We need the air defense. So number one is increase the military support urgently uh, to Ukraine so they can defend themselves. Number two, I would ask for uh, blocking sanctions on the state-owned banks. Blocking sanctions, meaning no more doing business with, with Russian state-owned banks. Uh, if a few existing contracts need to be carved out in Europe because of the energy contracts, then find a way to permit by license an individual contract, but stop and cease doing business with Russia. Natalie, can I say thank you? We had important conversations eight years ago, and unfortunately, we're having those conversations again. Thank you very much for being with us. Natalie Juresko, the former Ukraine finance minister. Lawrence Boone joins us now, director and chief economist. He likes MotoGP, Kaylee, yeah. as you know, from the OECD. Lawrence, great to catch up. We've got two shocks. We saw it in the ECB's forecast. We saw it in the Fed's as well. They've had to raise their inflation outlook. They've had to drop their projections for growth. It's a difficult position for policymakers, fiscal policymakers to be in. Lawrence, what's your recommendation for how fiscal policymakers should react to the higher energy bills across Europe? Well, actually, as, as you're saying, this is a moment for fiscal policymakers. Uh, what we are seeing now is a hit to to consumers of energy and also of food, um, and that needs to be addressed with fiscal measures. We recommended means-targeted temporary measure to actually soothe the bill for the poorest household, the lower income and lower middle income class people. Um, that will also actually help uh, inflation to be kept in check by lowering the wage price power that would come out of inflation bursting without any fiscal support. So right now, Laurence, I was looking at your projection and there was a careful uh, categorization of the market response slowing growth materially and pushing up consumer prices. Markets seem to be starting to move on and assume that there's going to be some quick resolution to this conflict, at least relatively speaking. Is that, does that mean that the ramifications economically, however horrific the humanitarian aspect of this is, would be really dampened because the markets have moved on? So I think we should refrain from any hasty um, conclusion. The situation is very volatile. It evolves by the day. Um, and we are seeing 
Uh, this not only with the humanitarian situation, which continue to be a flow of refugees, but also in prices, right? So market job is to anticipate what's going to happen in the future. And as the situation evolves, this expectation will move. So I think one thing, one known thing is that we will get a lot more volatility ahead of us as the situation evolves. Um, and the unknown is, is, you know, in which direction and how far that can go. Do you think, Laurence, that the economy can handle in the United States the idea of a hawkish Fed, of more tightening in the face of the inflationary impulse? So we are not starting in a vacuum, right? Prior to the conflict, and the United States economy was doing super well, very strong recovery, very low unemployment rate, and quite broad-based and high inflation. So in that circumstances, it's actually the, the, the Fed, you know, is moving in, in the direction that it should. Um, now, these very high energy and food prices mean that some consumers, some households will be hurt. And those households, they need to be supported um, because for some of them, the energy and food bill is 30 to 50% of, of their uh, purchasing basket. Um, and if there is this fiscal targeted support measure for these people, then perhaps fiscal consolidation in the US will be delayed a little, but that will also allow the monetary policy to run its course and do, do its job. Speaking of monetary policy, specifically for the Federal Reserve, what was absent from its statement yesterday was mention of COVID-19, it was only actually mentioned in the in the context of the inflationary impulse because of the supply side challenges uh, the pandemic presented. Has the world moved on from the pandemic as an economic risk going forward? So I think the pandemic remains an economic risk. You can see that from China with the zero COVID policies where some cities are being shut down. And many of these cities are manufacturers. They're manufacturing, they contribute to the global supply chain. Um, there's also some technological products. So I don't think we can we can disregard this risk while the pandemic is still with us and in many countries. And this still has impact on supply chain and on the tension, the inflationary attention as well. European consumers are going to be in such a tough spot through the next few months. Lawrence, thank you. Lawrence Boone there of the OACD. Let's get to Sarah Hewin, the head of Europe and America's research at Standard Chartered. Sarah, can we start with the Bank of England, work our way through the ECB and get to the Federal Reserve eventually? Can you see inflation at around 8% in the second quarter and the Bank of England not being more active through this rate hiking cycle through this year? Well, it looks as if they are losing their nerve. And of course, since the last meeting, uh, we've had a massive change in circumstances, which uh, really risks the uh, stagflation in the UK. Uh, we have rising inflation. Uh, inflation, 8%, looks likely could even go to double digits later this year. And although the data that we've had so far for the UK economy have been pretty positive for January and February, um, there is a clear concern about the squeeze in living standards that is to come. We are seeing inflation essentially at double the pace of wage increases, and that's not good news for the economy. I think also the comments on the supply side constraints um, suggest that uh, you know there's more consciousness that these costs coming through are externally generated and um, that they potentially pose more of a risk for growth uh, over, the, over the medium term. 
So it's possible, I mean, we're expecting another rate hike in May, but we think that will be it. We think by that stage, there will be a clear sign of slowdown in the economy and that um, the Bank of England will need to pause. Sarah, is there a message in this for the Federal Reserve that basically if the uh, inflation is coming from something other than monetary policy raising rates uh, isn't necessarily the answer? Or is the Fed just dealing with a completely different set of issues that also is a bit more driven by monetary policy? I think there are differences. Um, the UK economy is more exposed to the EU economy and that in turn is more exposed to the downside risks from the Russia-Ukraine war. So we're likely to see uh, further downgrades to EU growth and potentially to UK growth. Whereas for the US, they are insulated to an extent. Similarly, from an energy point of view, obviously, you know, the gasoline price is rising and that's a negative for U.S. consumers, but um, it's less of a case than it is on in Europe. I mean, we are still quite nervous about the U.S. outlook. We would only, uh, we, you know, we're expecting another three rate hikes this year from the Fed, but we think that those rate hikes will be front loaded and that when we get to the summertime that there will be clear signs of a slowdown. So I think it's the same phenomenon that's facing not just the UK, not just the EU, but also the US, and it just may be a matter of that impact being more delayed in the US. Sarah Hewan of Standard Chartered. How big will that rate increase be, though? 25, 50. I'm going to do that all over again with Jay Bryson, Chief Economist at Wells Fargo. Jay can hardly wait. Jay, let's start here with a question we've asked all morning. Can you raise interest rates without unemployment climbing? Sure you can. We've seen that happen before. Can you move to a restrictive stance, tighten financial conditions and do all of this, reduce the balance sheet over 18 months and get yourself back to somewhere close to 3% without unemployment rising? Jay, that's a big task, isn't it? You know, John, it is a big task. I mean, the, the Fed is in a very tricky sort of position right now. But, you know, if you go back to the 90s, and I know that sounds like ancient history to, to some folks, but, you know, in between 1994 and 1995, the Fed did raise rates by like 300 basis points. Um, and, you know, that was they were throwing in 50 basis point rate hikes or throwing in 75 basis point rate hikes. There was concern about inflation at the time. The economy... Um, it hit a little bit of a rough patch early in 1995, but they were able to pull it off. Now, I'm not being a Pollyanna. I'm not saying they're necessarily going to pull it off again this time, but it has happened before. So, Jay, are you saying that the bond market is perhaps a little bit too gloomy? And I can't believe that I'm saying this, but a little bit too gloomy with the flattening in the yield curve. And as people realize that the economy is perhaps in certain sectors, particularly in the consumer area, less sensitive to rate hikes, that it can withstand vastly more than they're expecting? Well, so, yeah. So if you look at the two tens, you know, the, the spread between the two year note and the, and the 10 year note right now, it's about 20 basis points or so. You know, as long as that doesn't invert significantly, I'm not really all that worried about it. And again, if you go back to previous tightening cycles, you'd get to a very, very flat um, yield curve um, at times. So it's certainly something that we're keeping an eye on. And, and more generally, you look at financial conditions right now, if you look at corporate bond spreads over treasuries and, you know, the stock market has come off. So in general, we have had a financial tightening that's going on. And with the Fed raising rates here, it's, you know, as I said, you know, 
when we first started here, it's going to be tricky for the Fed to pull this one off. Jay, do you agree with economists who think that because there has not been even more of a reaction in risk assets, the Fed will be even more aggressive in May with the beginning of their balance sheet shrinkage, as well as potentially even a 50 basis point rate hike? You know, Lisa, I don't know if it's all up to just, you know, risk assets in general. I think it's a lot's going to depend upon the, you know, the, the Fed is in data dependency mode right now, right? And, and the world can change between here and May. And so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, our, our view is that the Fed will announce balance sheet reduction starting in June. Who knows? Maybe it gets pulled up to May here. But it's, it's coming, assuming, you know, assuming that the economy doesn't get completely disrailed, derailed here. I think they'll start it out slow in terms of the balance sheet reduction, and then it'll yeah. kind of pick up, much like it did the last time around. Well, Well, Jay, when you talk about data dependency for the Fed, Chairman Powell seemed to indicate yesterday that getting inflation under control, price stability is a prerequisite for everything else in their mandate. So when we talk about data dependency, are we essentially exclusively talking about inflation data, about CPI, about PCE? No, I mean, I think those those, you know, the the inflation data, I think, are the the prime things that the Fed is looking at right now, as long as long along with um, inflation expectations, you know, measured both in the bond market and, and measured by the University of Michigan uh, sentiment survey. But they're also, they, they look at everything that's coming in. And so, you know, maybe labor market data takes a little bit of a backseat right now, uh, but it, it's not like they're going to completely ignore that. And if we see signs that the economy is really decelerating in the coming months, I think the messaging out of the Fed is, okay, maybe we're going to start to back it off here on that deceleration, Jay, do you anticipate that, especially given the uncertainties around the war in Ukraine, or does that ripple effect not really hit the U.S. as hard as it may Europe? So I think it hits Europe harder um, than, than it does here in the United States. Um, you know, they, they, there's more, uh, you, you look at the United States, we have very, very little direct exposure to Russia, both financially as well as economically. Europe has much more exposure as well. So you know, the primary thing uh, that uh, Russia is causing here in the United States is higher oil prices or higher gas prices. And that's something that's leading to a deceleration here. Outside of that, there, again, there's very, very few linkages between the U.S. economy and the Russian or Ukrainian economy to lead to a big deceleration, again, outside of gasoline prices. Jay, just quickly, one rate hike and two's tens is already about 20 basis points. We're already seeing some form of inversion, seven-year yields above tens. We saw that with fives a little bit earlier on this morning, threes threatening to do the same. Is the Fed comfortable to push through that, do you think, Jay, this time around, given where inflation is, given where the focus is this time around? Well, so if you look at two, so you know, what's priced into the bond market right now? Seven rate hikes. I mean, that's what the, you know, that's what the dot plot, uh, so seven rate hikes this year. That's what the dot plot said yesterday. So in theory... If the Fed does seven rate hikes this this year, and that should be all completely priced in, in theory, that shouldn't cause the yield curve to invert. But, you know, if if the market starts to anticipate even more aggressive tightening or more tightening out in 2023, then that's potentially where you could get your inversion. Jay, thank you, sir. Jay Bryson of Wales. We appreciate it. Let's get to Sarah Hewin, the head of Europe and America's research at Standard Chartered. Sarah, can we start with the Bank of England, work our way through the ECB and get to the Federal Reserve eventually? Can you see inflation at around 8% in the second quarter and the Bank of England not being more active through this rate hiking cycle through this year? 
Well, it looks as if they are losing their nerve. And of course, since the last meeting, uh, we've had a massive change in circumstances, which uh, really risks the uh, stagflation in the UK. Uh, we have rising inflation, uh, inflation 8% looks likely could even go to double digits later this year. And although the data that we've had so far for the UK economy have been pretty positive for January and February, um, there is a clear concern about the squeeze in living standards that is to come. We are seeing inflation essentially at double the pace of wage increases, and that's not good news for the economy. I think also the comments on the supply side constraints um, suggest that uh, you know there's more consciousness that these costs coming through are externally generated and um, that they potentially pose more of a risk for growth uh, over, the, over the medium term. So it's possible, I mean, we're expect, expecting another rate hike in May, but we think that will be it. We think by that stage, there will be a clear sign of slowdown in the economy and that um, the Bank of England will need to pause. Sarah, is there a message in this for the Federal Reserve that basically if the uh, inflation is coming from something other than monetary policy, raising rates uh, isn't necessarily the answer? Or is the Fed just dealing with a completely different set of issues that also is a bit more driven by monetary policy? I think there are differences. Um, the UK economy is more exposed to the EU economy and that in turn is more exposed to the downside risks from the Russia-Ukraine war. So we're likely to see uh, further downgrades to EU growth and potentially to UK growth. Whereas for the US, they are insulated to an extent. Similarly, from an energy point of view, obviously, you know, the gasoline price is rising and that's a negative for US consumers, but um, it's less of a case than it is on in Europe. I mean, we are still quite nervous about the US outlook. We would only, uh, we, you know, we're expecting another three rate hikes this year from the Fed, but we think that those rate hikes will be front loaded and that when we get to the summertime, that there will be clear signs of a slowdown. So I think it's the same phenomenon that's facing not just the UK, not just the EU, but also the US. And it just may be a matter of that impact being more delayed in the US. Sarah Hewan, the Standard Chartered. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.